Well, good morning. And would you please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. The Gospel of John, not the Gospel of Mark this morning. If you're visiting with us, we've, we've been spending uh, a good amount of time working through. Pastor Bobby has been leading us through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to take a, a three-week break from Mark and spend some time in this particular chapter, John 17. Um, my hope is that this is a break from Mark in a way that supplements our study of, of Mark and actually helps us to be prepared for what uh, Bobby is about to bring us to in the, in the gospel account that he's, that he's preaching through. Um, we are getting near in Mark to this moment in the life of our Savior. He is marching steadily toward the cross. And um, as, he, as he does that, he stops at a point in his, in his life, a key moment, and he prays. He prays to the Father. That's the prayer that we see in John chapter 17. It's a prayer that's not recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And I think as we will see, uh, its significance cannot be overstated. And it will do much to prepare us and to frame our thinking as we walk through the accounts of his arrest, his crucifixion, his burial, his his resurrection, uh, that we have these words firmly fixed in our, in our ears. Uh, one man called this chapter, he said, he called it perhaps the most sacred passage in the four Gospels, what we're going to be looking at here in the next three weeks. This is Jesus praying for himself, and as we'll see as he does that, as he prays for the, the Father to glorify him, that he might glorify the Father, what we find is that he is praying for us as he prays that prayer. Uh, it's helpful to me to try to, to imagine where they are, what's happening as, as we come to the passage here, and uh, that's a little bit difficult in this case. There's a little bit of disagreement as to whether Jesus and his disciples are still in the upper room. In the Gospel of John, the upper room discourse began in chapter 13. You remember that's where they gathered to celebrate the Passover, and he institutes the Lord's Supper, and he is teaching them. Um, and some believe that they're still in that room as he prays this prayer. There are others who think that they've left the room and are walking maybe outside and are on their way to the Mount of Olives. A lot of it comes down to, um, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 14, verse 31, as he's teaching them, the writer records his words when he says, get up, let us go from here. And then he just keeps on teaching. So did they stay and uh, hear the rest of what he said and then leave? Or did they get up then and leave? And he's teaching them along the way as they're walking. It doesn't really make a difference in terms of what he's about to say. Uh, but I, I, I tend to lean toward the second. I imagine as he's been teaching them that they're walking toward their destination and he stops at this point and he looks up to the heavens and he lifts his hands and he prays to the Father. And that's what we're going to see. Uh, as, as we spend these weeks in John chapter 17, there are a couple of things that I want to draw our attention to in particular, and they're going to come up over and over again in what Jesus says, what he's doing as he's praying as he is. I want to draw our attention, uh, number one, to the sight that we see here of the infinite value of Jesus, specifically as the perfect display of the glory of God. That's something I, I, I expect, I hope, as we, 
uh, three weeks from now that will be crystal clear from this chapter, that Jesus is the perfect expression of the glory of God. And we'll see it in many places. I also want to draw our attention in these weeks to this prayer and the love of God that's displayed through Christ as he prays it. And not just the love of the Father for the Son, but as we're going to see, as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, something amazing happens for us. We're going to see that as the love of God is displayed in Christ in this prayer, one of the ways we see that is uh, his love for us in that Jesus' glory that he's going to speak about becomes your glory, becomes our glory. He says some profound things about his people in this prayer. And so let's hear him. Uh, I'd like us to, to start. We're only going to be in the first five verses of the chapter this morning. Uh, but to help set the stage and hear him uh, in his entire prayer, I thought it would be best for us to stand and to read the entire chapter together as we start. So with that warning in mind, if you're able, please stand with me as we read from God's word. John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me 
through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And let's come before him now as we go together into his word and ask his protection and his blessing on us. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to see what we are doing. as the great privilege that it is, as the very weighty thing that it is. We are being fed by you. This is something that you do not owe to any mankind, but it's something you've promised to your children, that you will not leave us alone. You will lead us into all truth, that your spirit will guide us and enlighten our thinking. And Lord, we thank you that you're allowing us to Enjoy that blessing this morning. Lord, help us to see the weight of it, to feel it. Help us to respond to that sense of weight by attending urgently to your word. And Lord, thank you for this display that you've let us in on as your son prayed to you and you recorded it in our scriptures that we could hear something of the mind of our Savior. Thank you for him, Father. We pray that he be blessed in what we do this morning. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Glorify your son. This is the request that he makes in the first verse of this chapter. Uh, that request that the father would glorify the son so that the son might glorify the father. This is what sets the foundation of the entire chapter. Everything that he says in this prayer is connected intimately to that request that the father would glorify him. It fleshes out, it gives description, it explains what he means. And thus it's important as we begin to take a moment to understand what he's actually asking for. What does he have in mind when he prays to the Father and he says, The hour has come, glorify your Son. When we look into Scripture and, and ask for some insight into this concept and what Jesus had in mind, uh, it gives us a great deal of detail. Uh, this is, according to the first words of, uh, of his prayer, this is the thing for which the hour has now come in Jesus' life and ministry. The hour has come for the Father to glorify the Son. And what we find is that Jesus has in mind when he asks for this glory, not a singular event, but he is looking ahead to what is to come immediately after this as a package deal. He is looking ahead to his his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his 
session, his sitting at the right hand of the Father, all of this that is to come, he is looking to and he is saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And we can see pieces of this uh, in the many places earlier in the Gospel of John where, where Jesus has said that the hour has not yet come. It's actually a shift in John for Jesus to be saying in these portions that the hour has come. If we look back and see when he was not talking that way about his hour, we get some insight into what he's looking for here. Uh, John chapter 7 is a place, I'll just read a couple of these to you. Listen to what he says about his hour, and listen to the situation he's in as he says it. So John 7 verse 30, Jesus said, well, this is speaking about him. He's been, he's been teaching, and it says that they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So you see, even right there, we can start to get some, some evidence as to what it's going to mean for Christ when his hour comes. They wanted to arrest him, but no one touched him because his hour had not yet come. What does that tell you about the coming of the hour for Jesus? Something of the hour that's to come in which he will be glorified, includes the notion of his, at least his arrest in that passage. It's repeated again in the next chapter, in John 8, verse 20. It says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So clearly, as the hour approaches for Jesus, that he's waiting for, that he's walking toward, in which he will be glorified, there is an element of, of the glory that he is now asking for that is seen in the suffering that he is about to endure. And, of course, that suffering finds its pinnacle at the moment of the crucifixion itself. There is glory that Jesus is looking to receive in his crucifixion. Now, that can be sort of a paradox for us to think about. I think when we, when we, when we think back on the cross, the first thing that we often think of is not glory, it's humiliation, because clearly the cross and the suffering that preceded it is an element of Jesus' humiliation on earth, isn't it? The Son of God was spat upon. Our Lord was stripped naked. He was punched in the face. He was whipped. This is glory for him? Hung up to be mocked. And certainly those things are true, and that sense is true. There's a, there's, a, there's a real horror at what happens at the cross as the perfect Holy One is so mistreated. But this is where Jesus' words can be helpful as we understand that when he says, glorify your Son in his own mind, a part of what he is thinking of, and get this, praying for, is what he's about to go to and suffer. To help us with that, we have to think about what the glory of God actually is. What is it when God is glorified? And we have a pretty clear sense of this, that the glory of God is, is seen as the person, character, attributes, perfections of God are put on display for men and women to see and to worship. I remember hearing John Piper preach years ago in a very influential way for me, and he spoke about holiness uh, what holiness of God is, and then he said that God's glory is when that goes public. And he even did that. When that goes public, 
uh, for people to, to see. This is when God is glorified, when God is put on display. Now, does that immediately help you to see the glory that Christ is to receive in what's to come here? Where else besides the cross is the love of the Son of God put on display? Where else besides the cross is the, the mercy of the triune God, the forgiveness in the heart of God that he would endure the suffering for sin so that sinners might go free? That's, that's God. Where else is that seen more clearly than at the cross? Where more than at the cross is God's righteous indignation towards sin put on display? There is no greater display. And so as Jesus is suffering, and even in John 17, as he is looking ahead to his suffering, which in his humanity he shrinks from and is horrified at, he knows that what's coming is nothing short of the perfect display of the glories of God. And so he asks the Father, the hour has come, Glorify your son. D.A. Carson writes about this. Listen to how he puts this. He says, The very event by which the son was being lifted up in shame was that for which he would be praised around the world by men and women whose sins he had borne. Jesus knows what he's going to. He knows what his intention is. And so here at the beginning of this, your Savior praying, for glory to come to him through his own suffering as he shows us who God is. But that's not the only thing that he's praying for as he asks the Father to glorify him. This is not just a reference to suffering and the cross. We see another element of what his hour coming will mean. Uh, In John chapter 2, do you remember when Mary and Jesus are together at the wedding feast early on? Jesus has not yet done any miraculous deeds And there's a problem at the wedding. Remember that? They've run out of wine. And Mary apparently knows enough about her son at that point to know that he is the solution to their problem. And uh, she asks him to help with this. And she directs the servants to do whatever he says. You remember that? Um, I can't help but wonder if she as a mother was not just wanting to solve the wedding problem, but she was wanting her son to be sort of seen in terms of what he's able to do. And Jesus responds to her before he does solve the problem, but he responds to her this way. He says, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, that can't fit in the first category. She's not asking him to suffer. So why does he respond to her there by saying, my hour has not yet come? Well, what will happen as he begins to display himself is that he will begin to be recognized in glorious ways. He will begin to be, in the eyes of those who see, clothed in a splendor that is fitting for him and is what is coming for him when his hour comes. But he says to her, my hour has not yet come. So in in John chapter 2, that's not a reference to suffering. That's a, a reference to a display and a recognition of the supremacy of Christ. So we have to include that in our conception of what Jesus is praying for here when he asks the Father to glorify him. We have to understand that he's praying in a unified way for the manifold displays of glory that are about to happen. The crucifixion is one of those, the death of the Son of God. But the resurrection is there as well. 
He is, he is put on display in the resurrection. The ascension is this way. The sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is, this is a package deal in the mind of Christ as he is looking ahead and asking God to glorify him. I'll read once more from Carson, continuing right after what I just read to you about the cross. He goes on and says, But in this context, the primary meaning of to glorify is to clothe in splendor, as verse 5 makes clear, and we'll see that here in a few minutes. The petition asks the Father to reverse the self-emptying of glory entailed in his incarnation and to restore him to the splendor that he shared with the Father before the world began. Listen to this. The cross and Jesus' ascension and exaltation are thus inseparable. That's important for us to have in our mind as well as we continue to hear him pray for himself and for us. He is praying in view of this entire display of glory that is about to unfold. But as we keep reading, we see it's very quickly here in verse 1 that it's not just his own personal glory as the Son that he's praying for, is he? As the Son is glorified, the character and divine attributes and splendor, not just of him, but of the Godhead, of the triune God, is put on display. So that as he is glorified, what is he going to do with that glory? He is going to glorify the Father. And this is in line, in perfect alignment with everything that the New Testament tell us Jesus, tells us that Jesus came to do in the first place. It actually tells us many times that this is why Jesus came. He came to bear witness to the truth of who God is. Colossians is a great place to see this. Colossians 1.15 says of Christ that he is the image of the invisible God. That's enough to chew on all afternoon or all year. Colossians 1.19, all the fullness of God dwells in him. And it says that's according to the good pleasure of the Father. This is the eternal plan between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, being lived out now as Jesus arrives, walks the earth, perfectly glorifies the Father as the Father glorifies him. This is what he's come to do. And he does it so perfectly that he's able to say in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. It's another one to just chew on, and and we're going to go back to it later this morning, as a matter of fact, and look at that passage. But this is what he came to do. He came to show us who God is. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so with that in mind, let's hear Jesus now move beyond his request for glory as he explains what he's saying here in verse 1. What we're going to see in what follows in the rest of verses 1 through 5 are two reasons that Jesus is asking for the Father to glorify him in these ways. See, in verses 2 and 3, it's as if Jesus is saying, glorify me because it accomplishes our eternal plan on earth. And in verses 4 and 5, glorify me because it will accomplish our eternal plan in heaven. First, verses 2 and 3, as we come back to our passage here, we hear Jesus say, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And what he does now in verses 2 and 3 is he, 
he explains that. He, he gives a companion statement so that he's, he's making clear, I am praying in a way that accords with and fulfills our eternal plan, Father. When I ask you to glorify me, that I might glorify you, I am praying exactly in accordance with our perfect will that we have willed from eternity past. The first thing we need to see is that verses 2 and 3 do the same reciprocal. I'm going to do this a lot. Um, that verse 1 does. It's easier to see in verse 1. right? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That's real simple, right? Father to Son, back to Father. This is the intent. Now, what he says in verses 2 and 3 makes the same uh, connection. And in doing that, it sheds a lot of light for us. But let's read verses 2 and 3 carefully so we can see that. Verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, if we stop there, that seems to break up the the flow. In verse 2, it goes father to son to his people. But we're not supposed to stop at verse 2. We're supposed to see verses 2 and 3 together. Let's do that again, but go into verse 3. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and, by the way, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, the intent as it's worked out here works exactly as he's praying in verse 1. God has given authority to his Son so that the Son would use that authority to grant eternal life to all of God's people. And what does that look like as the Son grants eternal life? It looks like imparting true knowledge of the Father, revealing God. So the end product is the same in verses 2 and 3 as is clear in verse 1. The Son receives glory and works to glorify the Father. And if we can see that, relationship there, uh, we can then move past it and notice how that reciprocal um, echoes the message of verse 1. Remember, when, he, when, it, when it speaks of glorifying Jesus, he's speaking in terms of clothing in splendor. And where the Bible speaks of that act by the Father to the Son, the giving of authority is always present. We can see it in a few places. Daniel chapter 7 Verses 13 and 14, prophesying what's going to happen to Christ after his resurrection, says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And we see there as the Father bestows glory on the Son who's being brought to him. A part of that glory is the giving of authority. Jesus says this himself in Matthew 28 after after he's been raised from the dead. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the passage in Isaiah that we read around Christmas time has the same picture. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When Jesus speaks of getting glory in order to give glory to the Father, verses 2 and 3 zoom in on that for us. And they show us exactly how this will be fleshed out. They also show us something we're going to continue to see and marvel at throughout this chapter. And that is uh, that as Jesus prays for himself, we find him praying for us as well, for his people. He asks for glory. And what does that look like? It looks like authority to save. He he, he says he desires to glorify God. And what will that look like? It will look like the bestowing of salvation on a people, on us. Christ asking for glory from the Father is for your everlasting blessing. And as that happens, the glory of God and the outworking of his eternal plan is accomplished. Do you see the love of your your heavenly Father and of your Savior? That the way they have arranged their plan for eternal redemptive history to most glorify themselves, involves your eternal good and blessing. We're starting to see why this prayer is spoken of, has been spoken of since at least the 5th century as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He is praying for himself, certainly, and as he's doing that, he is serving us and bringing God's blessing to us. Before we go on to verse 4, let's just acknowledge something um, that Jesus has just said in verse Three, let's acknowledge that Jesus lists here knowledge of himself as a part of the qualification for eternal life. Did you hear him say that? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It doesn't get much more plain than that. What a statement. One man said, indeed, knowledge of Jesus Christ, whom God has sent, is the ultimate access to knowledge of God. I referenced John chapter 14 uh, a few minutes ago. You might turn there for just a moment. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. This is an understanding we must have clear in our thinking. We're always wanting the Word of God to shape our thoughts about who God is. Tozer said something to the effect of, Uh, What you think of when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so let's let God's word shape our thinking about God. Listen to Jesus' words here, starting in John 14, verse 7. He's speaking to his disciples. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Now stop there for just a moment. Did Jesus just claim to be the Father? Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Have you been with me so long, and you still do not know me? Is Jesus claiming to be the Father? Certainly not, and it's clear as we continue to read. That's the sort of clarification we always need to have. He is not claiming to be identical with the person of the Father, but he is making a statement about who he is in his incarnation as the God-man. Let's continue. 
Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If Christ does not choose to reveal the Father to us, we don't know him. We don't know the Father. So how could eternal life come to any if they somehow come to know the Father, the only true God, but don't know the Son? Do you see that that is a logical impossibility? I cannot know the Father if I don't know the Son. So it only makes sense as he's praying uh, in verse 3. Uh, and defining eternal life, that he would not just speak of knowledge of the Father, but knowledge of the Son, because the Son is the revelation and manifestation of the glory of God. Moving on to verse 4, we see Jesus' second reason given here. Glorify me, because this accomplishes our eternal plan on earth. And now, verses 4 and 5, glorify me, because it will accomplish our eternal plan in heaven. Verses 4 and 5, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You can see a sort of reverse parallel with verse 1. He had said, glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. Now he says, I glorified you, and now, Father, glorify me. He starts here in verse 4 with a statement of success. Even using the past tense, I glorified you on earth. And he follows that with an explanation. I glorified you on earth, and here's what I mean. I'm speaking of the fact that I accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's how I glorified you. And we've already seen pretty clearly what Jesus was sent here to do. He speaks of it in some other places. In fact, in the next chapter in the Gospel of John, he's going to say this as he's being interviewed by his opponents, as he's on trial. In John 18, 37, he will say, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And isn't that exactly what he said in the first three verses here? He has come to glorify the Father by giving eternal life to his people, which entails the gift of the true knowledge of God. And so everyone who is of the truth will hear his voice. It's just a remarkable thing to to think about and to reflect on, that as Christ stood among men, what was happening was God was being put on display. And as he speaks to us in the scriptures, you know the same thing is happening. God is being put on display as we encounter him in his word. It's almost like this is a theme in the Gospel of John. Do you notice every time we keep fleshing this out, we go to other places in John? Uh, John 12 is the next one I'll take you. You might just listen to this instead of turn there. 
This is a plea from Jesus to those he is speaking to. John 12, 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. We can hear a plea in his voice, and it's easy to know why. It's because of the nature of who he's talking to. What are we like, according to Scripture? We are a people who walk in darkness. Just four verses prior to that, he described us as having the eyes of our hearts blinded so that we don't see the light. 2 Corinthians 4 says the same thing, and it says that there are even active external forces blinding us from this light so that we might not see it. Unless you think that that makes somehow for innocence for you or for me. If the Bible is true, the account it gives of us all is that we love it that way. We love the darkness. And we hate the light. John 3.16 is the best known verse in the Bible, most likely these days, speaking of the love of God and the availability to any who would come to him. Um, And three verses later, verses 19 and 20, it's as if God looks over us in our natural state and gives the judgment, and here's what he says. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness. Rather than the light... Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things... Okay, stop. Do you do wicked things? Is the Bible true? Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light. Lest his work should be exposed. talk about this more in weeks to come. What does it mean then if you have come to the light? What does that mean about what's happened to you? And so Jesus in John 12 stands there and points to himself and he says, the light is among you. Walk in the light while you have the light. As he came to a people walking in darkness, he himself was the light of God, showing us where we ought to go, showing us what is true and beautiful and good. And so when he tells us in our passage in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, as he speaks of his faithful representation of the light of God to sinful men, you better believe he is correct in his assessment of himself. He did accomplish exactly what he was sent to do. But let's remember, he's not just speaking in terms of what he's already done up to that point. He's also speaking about what he's about to do as he goes to the cross, in the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Don't be bothered by the past tense in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, as if that doesn't include what he's about to do. It's plain in this prayer that he is speaking of all of this in light of its completion, in light of its sure completion. He does this in other places. You can look down to verse 11 if you'd like. He said there, I am no longer in the world. Well, yeah, you are. Is he, is, he, is he having an out-of-body experience? Is he confused? Or is he speaking, is he praying this prayer in view of the completion of the work he's speaking about? He's speaking as if it is finished. 
Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And clearly there he's speaking about the right hand of the throne of God. So this is the way that he is, uh, is speaking as he prays. The past tense there does not remove Jesus' work on the cross as a part of his glorifying God on earth. And in fact, it has to be that way since the cross is the pinnacle of the work that he has come to do. It's at the cross that we find the fulfillment that seemed to have been impossible to fulfill in God. Psalm 85.10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness, the righteousness of a perfectly just God who is eternally angry with sin. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. This has to have the cross as its completion. It requires the forsaking of the Holy One of God. And in John chapter 17, what we're hearing is we're listening to that Holy One pray for the opportunity to glorify God in that way and to declare the perfect fulfillment of it in His finished work. Finally, in verse 5, we have the other side of that parallel in verse 4. He said in verse 4, I glorified you on earth. And in verse 5 he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And we'll finish this morning by noticing two things about this final request here. First, let's notice, we said about verse 1 that Jesus' request of glory entails both uh, the display of himself on the cross and his future glorification as he is seen seated at the right hand. It's clear in verse 5 here that Jesus is talking specifically there about the second of those, right? About he's looking to his ascension and his session as his ultimate glorification. Uh, when it says, glorify me in your own presence, those words literally mean beside yourself. Two words. He has in mind the throne, the right hand that he is coming to. In Luke 22, verse 69, he will tell the Sanhedrin at his trial. <laughs> what boldness. From now on you, excuse me, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He knows exactly what he's doing and where he's going. Second thing to take note of here, I began uh, by saying one of the things I want us to highlight repeatedly as it comes up in this chapter is to see Jesus' high priestly prayer as a display of the love of God, not only for Christ, but for us, in that, the lo- in, that in that love, Jesus' glory becomes our glory. Well, that verse 5 is one of the first central places where we get to see this. You know why verse 5 makes that so clear? Because of what he goes on to say in verses 22 and 23 and 24. Verse 5, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's asking for himself to be brought back to the right hand. Now, listen and look with me at verses 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now, I believe when, when he's speaking there about giving us the glory that he has received, he's talking about the first glory 
uh, that, that we spoke about. He has been all of his life in ministry as he displayed God to a people in darkness. He has been being glorified. God has been glorified through him as he manifested God to his people. And what we find is he gives that glory to us as his children. It's important for us as we go through day in and day out, we go through difficulties, we get tired, that we remember that as God is sanctifying us through his Holy Spirit, guess what he's doing? He is allowing us as we walk around and drive to work and see people and come home and minister to our families, he is allowing us nothing short of an opportunity to put God on display to the people around us. And he apparently is excited about that as he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. So let's use this as an opportunity to be excited again about the calling we've been called to. But then in verse 24, he speaks of the second glory. In verse 5, he asks to be returned to God's right hand. And in verse 24, he will say, Father, I desire that they may also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God, I've done what I was sent here to do. Clothe me in splendor at your right hand. And oh, by the way, can my people come with me? Can their eternal future look like standing in the midst of my perfect glory on display, the perfections of the happiness and joy and peace of God? You're bringing me there. Here's my prayer. Can they come with me? My friends, this is your future. That we're talking about. And it's certain because he's prayed for it. The answer to Jesus' prayer from his father was yes. And he has prayed for you that you might be with him where he is. So no matter what you're dealing with this week, you have to have this full picture of your future in your mind. You will spend an eternity in the presence of the glory of Christ. Do you hear the love of your Savior as he asks that for you? Do you hear the love of your Heavenly Father as they together have designed redemptive history and all of their historical purposes in just this way that their glory actually serves to eternally bless us if we are in Christ? He prays for his people, as we'll see next week. And as we continue to look through chapter 17, we will see these displays over and over again. And we'll reflect on the fact that his prayer was answered. He was brought into the Holy of Holies. He is there now. And in answer to the prayer that he's given for us, as we will see, he has brought us to be with him there. He has earned us a future in which we will know God. Intimately, personally, truly. And we will know his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, he has purchased us eternal life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, 
what can we say at the at the revelation that we have before us as we sit and listen to our Savior pray for us. We hear his love for his people all the way through this chapter. It is almost eerie to hear him turn and pray for us personally in verse 20 when he said, I do not pray for these these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's who we are, Father. Your word has been effective. It has been unstoppable through history. And as we have come now to be born and to live, it has done its intended purpose. It has taken a group of enemies of yours and washed us and made us your friends, made us your children. Father, thank you. We pray In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me for our benediction this morning out of the end of Romans chapter 11? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be Repaid, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forevermore. Amen. You're dismissed.